Today's sermon text is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was on um, <clears throat> April 2, 1739, when John Wesley, many of you know that name, he was a revivalist in England, when he began to preach out in the public square. So always preaching was in the context of the church, but this was the first time that he felt moved by God to begin preaching outside to the common people. Many times the common people would not feel right or good to come into the church, and so he decided to take the gospel message out to them. And he began to preach to them, and it really set off an explosion of revival in England, uh, the likes that the country had never seen before. And he records this in his diary. He says, At four in the afternoon I submitted to be more vile, and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The reason he chose that passage to begin this new ministry is because Jesus chose this passage to begin his ministry of bringing good news to this world. We need good news. I mean, you know we do. We live in a culture uh, that is in decline. We live in uh, a time of political vitriol crime rising, inflation. We are massively overwhelmed by fears of what's going to be next. We need good news. And Christ came to a culture not unlike ours that needed the same kind of good news. And he begins to preach. Now, when you think about Luke's gospel, I want you to remember that it was a, it was a book that Luke, a physician, wrote. He wrote it to a man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus is two little Greek words. It just means lover of God. He wanted to give a historical and a theological understanding of this person named Jesus. And so he began his gospel beginning with the birth of John the Baptist, who is the cousin and the forerunner of Christ. And then he, then he writes about Jesus' birth. And then he writes about the angelic visitation to the shepherds announcing Christ's birth. And then he writes about how Christ was presented as an offering to the temple. And then what Luke does is he jumps forward all the way to the beginning of the Baptist ministry. And then he speaks about Christ being tempted. And then he writes our passage. Now what's interesting is Luke, as a gospel writer, 
omitted a lot of the material that other gospel writers record about Jesus in his Galilean ministry. Because he wants to start on this hometown preaching. Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's preaching to them. The first preaching recorded in Luke's gospel by Jesus. Because he wants us to see this as a paradigm of his entire ministry. He wants us to see that the whole gospel is to be understood through this idea that Jesus has come in the flesh to preach. That's why he came. This Advent series on why has Christ come? He came to preach. Isn't that incredible? He came in the power of the Spirit, and he came to preach. So that's all I want to look at today. But, but you're going to be amazed. I trust comforted in what he came to preach to us. So let's look at two things, how he came. He came in the power of the Spirit. You see that in 14 and 15. And in why he came, he came to preach. And you're going to see that in the balance of the verses, 16 to 21. Uh, so how he came. Look with me at 14 and 15 again. He says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Luke is just giving us a snapshot of, of Jesus' ministry. And he's saying that his ministry was grounded, it was fueled, it was empowered by the very Spirit of God. Now, if you would have read the entire beginning four chapters of Luke, you would already know the role of the Spirit in his ministry. The Spirit of God is the one that conceived Christ in the womb of Mary. The Spirit of God anointed Christ at his baptism. The Spirit of God impelled him to go into the desert to face temptation from Satan, of which where Adam failed, Christ was faithful, making him ready for ministry. And then the Spirit impels him to preach. And preach he does. You see it in the surrounding countrysides. Jesus came to preach. He came to declare that God reigns over all things. We may not see it out there, but he does reign, and Christ now is bringing about a kingdom that will start small, almost imperceptible, but then it will grow. And it'll, it will ultimately be consummated in reclaiming the whole world. That's what Jesus has come to do, to preach this. Now, let me just stop here for a minute, because you know, 14 and 15, it's kind of a summary statement. In the power of the Spirit, he came, and we don't really know what he did exactly. It's kind of a general statement of his preaching ministry. But it does show us the role of preaching, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a minute. The Puritans used to say, God had one son, and he made him a preacher. Why, why do you make him a preacher? I mean, to what degree do we value preaching? He says in the Gospel of Mark, Simon was looking for him. He was out praying in the morning. And so Simon, it says, searched for him, and they found him, and they said, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. <clears throat> so it's incredible for you to think about if God were to bring forth a son and give him a task to do, all the things that Jesus did, all, all the things that Jesus did, all the ministry, all the teaching, all the encouraging, all the praying, all the healing, all the challenging, he sent him to preach. Because it's the word of God that ultimately changes us. It's not our white-knuckled, tight-fisted, you know, New Year's resolutions that bring change. It's hearing the word of God as delivered by the spirit of God that brings about change. I mean, we need this in our lives, in our marriages, in our friendships. This is how we're moved 
incrementally among the body. But it's preaching. Now, now we think, well, there's good preaching and there's okay preaching and there's bad preaching. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, you know, there's a lot of men who can preach the gospel better than I can. But nobody can pre- preach a better gospel. The gospel is the, is the thing that changes us. And, and so let me just remind you of how God values preaching. He intends to build a people, gather a church, grow up a church, primarily through the word being explained, the gospel being declared, sinners being called home, saints being changed from glory to glory. That's why we gather. That's why the pulpit's in the front of the church, it's not over to the side. There isn't an altar behind me that takes dominance, as you may see in the Roman Catholic Church in the Anglican. It's the pulpit. It's the preached word which changes the people from glory to glory. This is really essential to understand. But notice also the Spirit of God. To what degree do you think about the Spirit? You know, the Spirit isn't new to Jesus' ministry. We see him all the way in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, hovering over the waters, bringing order out of chaos. You see the Spirit of God filling men to build the temple. You see the Spirit of God fill Moses and David and the prophets. The Spirit of God gives life to the people of God. You see in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, the Spirit is the one that brings us life. The Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Spirit illuminates Scripture to us so that we can understand what we didn't before. The Spirit perseveres us so that we are found faithful at the end, even though we have fits and starts throughout the Christian life. The the Spirit of God confirms to us we're children of God. The Spirit of God equips us to walk in faith. If you think of there is no Christian life apart from the incredible role of the Spirit moving in us. Christ had the Spirit. The same Spirit is given to us. And I dare say many of us may not have thought about the Spirit three times this week. And yet there is nothing apart from the Spirit. We rely on maybe our, the, the you know, training we've had or the experiences we've had. Uh, but but we're cry, we are to be crying out for the Spirit. We need the Spirit to move forward. You need the Word of God. You need the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we have no hope. The two combined is what changes us. Asking God for his spirit to illuminate our eyes, to see, and then to draw us forward. Many of us don't like to read the Bible. Ask God, fill me with your spirit that I would have a desire. Many of us don't like our neighbors. God, give me a heart to love those that are unlovable. We ask the spirit to strengthen us. He told the apostles, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. That's the spirit of God. We need that. Again, Spurgeon has a word to help us. He says this. He says, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind. We are chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. So we see just in these two little verses how the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make and form and perfect a people of God. So that's the first thing we see. So how he came, he came in the Spirit. But notice why he came. Now, interestingly, Luke records, this is his first sermon. And he's preaching in Nazareth, his hometown. Now, many of you may not know this, but now it was a small little town. It was only maybe a couple hundreds of people. It, It was a backwater place. Think of some old country long ago passed over town. 
That's where it was. It was, it was just nothing was happening there of note. And so he comes back. Now, you notice in 14 and 15, he had some popularity. He had some fame. I mean, he was getting known around all the countryside. Well, so Christ's coming home now to Nazareth, a backwater town. He's got a name now. This is like a homeboy made good. I mean, this is, he's coming home now. And what do we do for him? Well, we give him a key to the city. We name a street after him. I mean, we definitely give him a chance to speak, and that's what they did. So the president of the synagogue said, hey, we want you to speak at the synagogue. Look with me what he did at 16 to 20. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I mean, can you imagine? J j notice with me a few things. So we roll through those verses. Notice it says, as was his custom, he went to the church, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. That's what he did regularly. Now, I imagine that like a lot of churches in some backwater town, you know, they probably have modest preaching. And the people probably were in the town generation after generation, and it probably is not short of their odds and ends. I mean, probably a, a real different place. Many of you know this experience. And yet Jesus doesn't find, as was his custom, he went there. Week after week, he went there. You know, even though maybe the preaching wasn't super strong, or maybe the people were kind of odd, but as was his custom, he would worship God with the people to whom he had gathered. You know, we hear in our day that you don't really need to be a part of the church. You don't need to attend regularly. You can, you can kind of do your own thing. You know, you've got the Bible and you have the Spirit and we don't need the gathered community. But, you know, if we want to really be like Christ, we probably want to do what he does. And if it was his custom to always worship with the people of God, we probably find ourselves on thin ice thinking that we don't need to worship with the people of God. So it's kind of an encouragement to us just by his own practice. But notice also that he stood to read. He stood to read because he had respect for the word of God. He stood up as he read. Now, of course, when he read, it says a was handed to him. So we have books that are bound, that you turn pages. But in this day, they wrote on parchments, and they rolled parchments up together. And so he would have had to unroll the scroll of Isaiah that was handed to him. We assume he chose the scripture. It says he, saw, you know, he chose the text that he would read. But think about it for a minute. He must have read a lot. Because if you, you know, Isaiah is 66 chapters. You know how many parchments that would be? And he would have to unroll them, and he'd know exactly where to go? There were no chapters until the 12th century. There were no verses until the 15th century. So there was no address that he could just turn to like we do. There were no tabs in the scrolls. He had to have walked through those pages many, many times. He was studying. He, he knew the word. He went right to what he wanted to teach. 
And notice that he, it shows us, even though he was filled with the Spirit, he still studied. He still knew the Scriptures. He still read them. He still conformed his life by them. And then notice, after he read, he sat down, it says. Now, this was the customary teaching of, a, of a, the position of a teacher, to sit down. See, it's kind of reversed in our day. You get to sit down, and I'm standing up. Maybe it's because I respect you so much. But, but he sits down, and he begins to teach. But notice, Luke doesn't record much of what he teaches. He records the verse that he preaches on. And this becomes the lens through which we see why he came. This is why I want to look at this passage this passage from Isaiah, I want you to notice, it was from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and that was a passage that was preached to the exiles, the people of Israel that were now exiled in Babylon because of their faithlessness, uh, that this prophet Isaiah was saying to them, one will come and will preach good news to you. You are poor in Babylon, you're captive, you're oppressed, you're blind to the things of God, one's going to come and deliver you. That was the promise. Now, if you read the book of Isaiah, you're going to find that most of the time that this Messiah, that's the name of this servant, the Messiah in the first half, a Messiah will come and redeem. That's God's promise in Isaiah. Uh, but then in the second half of the book, this Messiah is called a servant, and this servant is going to suffer. Well, it's one and the same, right? It's the same individual. He is a, he is a Messiah, but he's also a servant. He's a suffering servant. And so what this text that Jesus chose was, was God was promising to send one man, a Messiah, a suffering servant, to come and preach, to proclaim, to announce like a herald. All the things he could have sent, he sends a preacher. And notice to whom he sends the preacher. It's the poor. It's the captive. It's the blind. It's the oppressed. I mean, that, that's not your who's who of Israel. Uh, these are the broken of our world. And, and, and notice, choosing Isaiah, what, what Jesus began to preach. He said, I will preach good news to the poor. Good news. That, that word is just gospel. It's, it's the verb is evangelism. Evangel is the noun, it's the gospel, it's God reigning and bringing forth deliverance to a people that come through repentance and faith. But he preaches it to the poor. Now the poor, we think immediately of material poor, and surely it included them, but I think it's much more than that. I think it's primarily it's the spiritual poor. Jesus said later, blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So the poor, those who are, who are spiritually poor, morally bankrupt. Now, this, of course, includes the material poor. In fact, I would say to you that those who are materially poor, those who suffer more from material things, are often quicker to make the connection of their spiritual poverty than those who are materially prosperous. Prosperity blinds us to our own moral bankruptcy. We have it so good. We have so many things. Life is so sweet. Life is so comfortable for us. And we naturally equate that, well, I must be favored by God. And so the rich, we are warned here. He says, I've preached good news to the poor. That spiritual bankruptcy, where we actually begin to take real stock of ourselves and say, I really am not as good 
I, I really haven't attained the heights of moral perfection that I really thought I had. It, it's coming to terms with the fact that we are marked by shame and guilt over our failures, our repeated failures, our attempts to do better, but our failure again. Jesus has come for them. Like, we're not going to look down on them. They're the one he's going to. It's the, it's the spiritual pride in us that prevents us from enjoying this message that he's come to preach good news to the poor. He's come to offer a word of God's mercy and kindness to those who have failed repeatedly. We run from moral failure, and yet he runs to our moral failure. He preaches good news to us, but he does more than that. He proclaims freedom to captives. That's the next thing in Isaiah, freedom to captives. Now, of course, I imagine this means those captives as they were captive in Babylon. They were taken as prisoners of war. They were transported from Israel to Babylon. But it's more than that. I mean, if you and I think, and you're sitting here, well, I'm free. I mean, I can do whatever I want. I'm free to do this, that, and the other thing. Do you know, we all have our own slave masters. I, I mean, it may be wanting to be beautiful, Maybe wanting to be rich, thin. It may be wanting to be popular, powerful, progressing in government or position. It, it could be a lot of things that we, these, these loves that we have. We're in bondage to people's opinions. We're in bondage to food, to drink. We're in bondage to, to all kinds of things. The quickest way you know what you're in bondage is, what do you love most? Whatever the object of your love is, our loves never lie. So whatever the object of my love is, that will get my service. That will get my attention. That will get my time. That will get my effort. That will get my money. Our loves don't lie. Jesus has come to free us so that we can enjoy the things of this world and they don't become our masters. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist and, and an essayist. He says, all other freedoms once won, all other freedoms once won, soon turn into a new servitude. The things that we're free to enjoy will often enslave us. Christ is the only liberator whose freedom lasts forever and doesn't create new bondages other than we become a slave to Christ, which is where we find joy. So, so this idea of he's proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom to captives. Do you not want this? I mean, when you think about the nature of your lives and how they consume your mind, maybe it's just wanting to be beautiful or smart. To what degree are you bound? Christ has come to set us free. But not just that, he's come to give sight to the blind. Now, how does preaching give sight to a blind person? Well, by opening up doors of understanding of the glory of God's majesty and mercy. We're blind to pursue all kinds of loves in this world, thinking that we're going to find joy. And time and time and time again, we meet discontentment and frustration, and we pick up another love, and we pursue that. And then that leads to just another sense of discontentment. No, he, he gives us sight to understand the glory of God. You know, to think I was blind. To say, you know, when I look at my own life, uh, so pre-25, I had values and I had priorities and I had actions in accordance with those 
that really would draw for you a picture of my life that was very, very centered on me. It was very horizontal. It was immediate. It was impulsive. And then Christ comes and changes me. The values change. The priorities change. My knowledge of God that was maybe technical and superficial now becomes more personal and more profound. It's like, it's like I was blind, but now I see. I mean, you just introduce God into the picture of people, and, and, and everything changes. A purpose of living, fears of life, goals of life. Everything changes when God, all of a sudden, when the reality of God descends into your universe, everything changes. There's a new sheriff in town, and he's come to give sight. How many of us are walking blind? You may technologically know the gospel, but is it changing, challenging? Is it adjusting you? Are you finding joy and satisfaction in it? This is why he came. But he also came to give liberty to the oppressed. Now, literally in Greek, it's to bind up those broken. You know, those that the world just crushes. Now, usually we think of that's women, that's children, that's alien sojourners. But so many of us feel like you get caught up in the gearing of our world and you're crushed, you're just crushed to smithereens. And he says, I've come to give you liberty. Those of you who feel oppressed, who never measure up, who never add up to any other peer that you compare yourself to, I've come to free you from the bondage of always being crushed by the injustices of the world. What would, you have been, what would you have done if you were in his, the audience that day? I mean, would you not have found hope? If you were in exile in Babylon and you read this prophecy in Isaiah, surely you'd be waiting for that day. You'd be longing for the day. But then notice what he says last. He says, and I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is really important. It's not a t- calendar year he's speaking about here. Uh, he's probably referring to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, if you don't know what that is, it's found in the laws of Moses where every 50th year that among the people of Israel, that all slaves were freed, all debts were erased, and all lands were restored to their families. Can you imagine in the 48th year? It'd be like a total reset. It'd be, a re- it'd be like being born again. You get your land back, you get your debts removed, you get your freedom back. I mean, can you imagine those Babylonians you know, or the, the Israelites in Babylon? You know, this was the first installment of the year of Jubilee. They come back, and here they find themselves with their land, without debt, free to move about as they want. When it says that I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus was saying, I've come to do a whole reset. I've come to make you new, to born to give new life to you, that you'd be born again. I mean, you can just imagine. Now, it says that their eyes were fixed on him. I wonder why. Was it just that? Or it could be this. He only read half the verse. So if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll find that it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped, he rolled up the scroll. And I'm sure the people, knowing the scriptures, would have said, Why'd he stop mid-verse? Why didn't he finish the sentence? Because the rest of the sentence is, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of God. What Jesus did here is he introduced this interval of time. 
He says, I'm here, and I'm preaching God's favor. I'm coming to save, and I'm calling people, those of you burdened and heavy laden, to come and find rest in me. But he doesn't mention the day of vengeance, the day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment, but we are living in now this year of favor. How long do we have? I'm preaching the gospel to you right now. We're still in this year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ could come back and bring judgment this afternoon. Please don't smirk. I mean, it could. There's no stopping him. There's no timetable that he's bound to. Right now, this, that's why there's an urgency every Sunday in preaching. There's a joy because we're always celebrating the resurrection. But there's always an urgency. Can you, that's why their eyes were fixed. Why didn't he say that? In other words, Jesus was saying, God's patient with us. But I want you to notice one last thing. He did preach something. Look at the last verse with me. The last verse. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. That was a one-sentence sermon. So you've had more than that, and I appreciate you being patient. That's all Luke recorded, because that's all Luke wanted to say. When he says, today... Now, they were expecting a Messiah to come one day, but this was the day that God chose to bust into space and time with the Son to declare it. So today, this scripture, this promise, this Messiah has been fulfilled, but, but here's what he said, in your midst. Now, when he said in your midst, what he was saying to, to them was this, I'm him. I'm right here. In me you'll find forgiveness of sins. In me, you'll find reconciliation with God. In me, if, you're, if, you're, if you are suffering from massive spiritual and moral bankruptcy, in me, you can find forgiveness. If you are captives and you're bound to alcohol, to food, to pornography, in me, you will find freedom. If you are blind, if you have an inverted paradigm of values, you love money, you love yourself, you love everything surrounding, in me, you will see glory. In me, if you're oppressed, if the world's chewing you up, destroying you, injustice, in me, you'll find liberty. That's what he's saying to them. Can you imagine that message? What would they have done? What would you have done? If you were there, how would you have responded to him? Would you have fallen down and just worship? Thank God that finally the Messiah has come and then dedicate your life to follow him? Or would you hold back and say, ah, this, might, this is just Joseph's son. I mean, what are we talking about here? We're not even sure if it's Joseph's son because that pregnancy seemed shorter. They did all that moving around beforehand. So I don't even know if it's Joseph's son. How, how would you have viewed him? See, the meaning of Christmas for us, we always celebrate Advent every year because we want to remind ourselves of, of why did he come. And we won't understand Christmas. Christmas will simply be a horizontal time of consumeristic gift buying and giving without understanding. See, to understand the meaning of Christmas, we have to understand Jesus rightly. And what we have to understand Jesus rightly as is a Savior that has come to deliver us. And not as a co-pilot to help us in life, not as a friend to get us along in this world, not as somebody that we go to when we really got problems that extend out of our reach. No, he is someone to deliver all of us. He, God could have sent a, a philosopher, 
and told us about the meaning of life and showed us how to kind of navigate through these ways. He could have sent an educator to kind of inform us, this is how you have your best life now. He could have sent a politician and said, well, if we get the government straight this way, then your life will be healthy and whole. But he sends a savior. He sends a redeemer, a rescuer, a deliverer to people that are lost, broken. All of us, none of us, we're all in that grouping. But we have to get Jesus rightly. And then Christmas, to understand Christmas, we have to understand ourselves rightly. How do you wonder, if you were to pick out one of those four groups, which one would you be in? Were you blind? Were you oppressed? Were you poor? You know, spiritually bankrupt? Were you a captive? See, we don't like to think of ourselves that way. We have trouble kind of putting ourselves in this, you know, there's so much pride. You know, if you struggle with ever repenting of your own sin to others, that's just a, a mark for me. If you always find the problems in your life, whether marriage or family or workplace, if it's always somebody else or circumstances, that is not a good sign. That would be an indication that you haven't done the work of of, of seeing your own needs. See, Christmas is only good for those who see their own brokenness. You know, Jesus said clearly in Matthew 9, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. No one has need for a Savior to come at Christmas if they're not sick. If you're well and you're whole and you're good and you've done it all right and and really it's not your issue at all, then you don't even need Christmas. You just pass on the holiday. Save you a ton of money. But it's those who are sick. You know, when you look at the group, if you read through the rest of the chapter, you're going to find that they didn't believe in him. They didn't revere him. They actually tried to kill him. Why? Because of what he was saying he was coming to do for them. They said, not for me. <laughs> I'm not poor. I'm not captive, I'm free. I'm not oppressed, I'm not blind, I understand the things of God. They said, no, we don't need this. And they moved with antagonism, not ambivalence, but antagonism towards them. Sad day, when you think about it. They missed it. I pray we don't. I pray we don't. But to understand Christmas, you also have to understand the mission. You have to see the mission of Christ rightly. Not just Christ, not just ourselves, but the mission of Christ. Listen, people want to co-opt Jesus as a liberator. They want to say he's a, he's a liberator and he's a social revolutionary and he's a, he's a political revolutionary that's going to overturn governments. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, a lot of liberation theologians pick up the gospel like in South America much liberation theology of, hey, we're going to take the gospel, we're going to overturn the government, we're going to return oppression. Wokeism isn't a new idea. It isn't a new idea. No, they may not be using Jesus, but liberation theologians use Jesus. The gospel is going to overturn governments and change. They want to bring social betterment, distribution of wealth, but they're not worried about the soul. They don't realize that those who are oppressed if they remove the oppressors, they become the oppressors. Look at the French Revolution. It's really simple. It's all there in history for us. So they miss it. But then you've got others who want to co-opt Jesus for spiritual, spiritual purposes. Well, the poor, he's really only talking about the morally bankrupt. That's all. 
You don't need to worry. We focus on getting to heaven. So we're poor, we're broken. He's come to save us and bring us to heaven. And we spiritualize Jesus, ignoring the reality that the church does have a response. Christ had a mission to people and their bodies and their current problems. And so they co-opt Jesus on there. The others want to use Jesus to overturn the world. Uh, the others want to use Jesus to escape the world. And, and what we find is that the mission of Jesus is both. He did preach a gospel message for people to be forgiven of sins, but they were poor and he fed them. They were sick and he healed them. He didn't try to over... He, he dealt with the physical issues just like we're called to do. This is why I preach the gospel to you each week. At the same time, in the end of January, we're going to be gathering in here and Blair's going to lead us on what are the different ways that we can involve in taking the message out to the world? How do we move in ministry purposes towards others so that we can both be bringing the gospel to bring about a change in souls, but also a concern for those with whom we live, that we can display the gospel. It's a both and. We want the gospel to first change us and then use us in the lives of other people. It's not one or the other. There's no separation between the two. Max Stiles wrote a book called The Marks of a Messenger, and in this book he's talking about evangelism and how a friend of his had been a, a missionary in Guatemala among the of farmers in the hill country and trying to get protein in their diet. The children were greatly malnourished. And so they were considering all these different ways of how do we include and incorporate and increase protein. Well, at the same time, of course, they were preaching the gospel and planting churches. And what they found was this, that when these men were becoming, they were coming to church and they were hearing the gospel and they were believing the gospel They'd stop drinking and beating their wives. They would start planting crops, and the crops would start growing, and they started eating better. And surprise of surprises, protein started increasing in the diet. It was, you, you see them be reconciled to God, lives inverted, and then the societal change begins. So the mayor of the city said, the gospel is what brought protein into our diet. That's how the gospel, that's the mission of Christ. It's not simple social activism and it's not simple spiritual, you know, get them saved. No, we are changed by the power of Christ. And then we want to see change occur, not just in our lives and marriages and families, but in others as well. And then the last thing I would say, a meaning of Christmas, is we have to think about longing rightly. Longing. What, what do you long for most? I mean, if you were to say, what are my top three desires that, that you're longing for? In other words, in the future, what do you want? Because Advent is a time, Advent means coming. And, and so we are celebrating his coming, but he's coming again. So Advent is that reminder baked into the church calendar to keep you anticipating and cultivating and contemplating what will it be like when he comes? Do, do you see, as you think about him coming in fullness and glory, it's going to change the way you live today. You can't think about that day without thinking, well, that ought to tweak what I'm doing now, how I talk to my wife, how I handle my money, how I handle my work. If you know that day is coming, then it's going to change this day. There's a longing here. You know, when he said, I've come to preach good news to the poor, freedom to captives, 
sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. I've been in ministry a lot of years. We still have the poor. We still have the captives. Many of you are still bound up in sin, still blind, many to the glory of God, many still oppressed. It hasn't come in its fullness, but it will. And, and these are the days that just remind me, oh, it's coming. And there's an anticipation, a longing that's to take place in us. And that's really what leads us to celebrate the, the bread and the wine. Because the bread and the wine, remember, they're a memorial for us. I think they're more. I think they, the spiritual presence of Christ is among us by faith as we, as we consume them. But they're a memorial and they're reminding us of what he did. But unlike most memorials, which just look back at past events in a history of a city or a state or a country, these are different. This memorial looks forward. So, so when we take the bread and the cup, Jesus at the Last Supper reminded them. Here's what he said in Matthew. He says, or in Mark 14, he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is putting in their minds, we're going to do this again. But it will be in a different way. So communion each month is to be calling us to contemplate that final day, to long for it. And, and you'll find it in Revelation 19 if you want. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. Can you imagine in Luke 12, he says that Jesus will, will gird himself with a towel to serve us that day. That's what, we're long, that's what communion is about. That's one of the many facets. When you are going to look at that bread, the body, that bread is his body. It was broken for us because of our sin. Bearing the judgment of God. The blood was shed to establish a new relationship between God and man that will now be in Christ. In Christ we are now children of God. So when we eat this bread and drink this cup, it, it, it's a monthly reminder built in to keep saying, oh, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Don't forget, he's coming. It's like if you've ever gazed at the horizon, you know, the horizon, you can only see about three miles sailing. You can only see about three miles at sea level because the curvature of the earth, you, can, you can't see any further. But, you know, as you're sailing, you keep looking at it and, uh, and anybody that's sailed, I haven't sailed across the ocean, but those, you know, all of a sudden you, you do crest and you begin to see, you see land. That's what's going to be for us. You know, we're just waiting for that horizon to all of a sudden see, oh, he's there, the land, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what this longing is to do. So let's take a moment now and just ask God for grace to make the ministry of Christ real to it. He came in the power of the Spirit and he came. Uh, to bring good news to us who are poor. Let's just confess that. Ask both for confession of sin, but ask for celebration of his forgiveness. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.